17. I told you we were going to be in Matthew 5 for a little while, and uh, I'm actually going a little faster than I first anticipated. So uh, if you think that it's dragging, uh, you should have seen what I had planned. Uh, but uh, we are going to be uh, looking at this, this uh, really it's a, it's a new thought, if you will, that he builds on his, his uh, thought of the, what we, the first 16 verses were what I called an introduction. And now he begins with uh, not the meat of the sermon just yet, but the, the not not so much the introduction either. And I think you'll see uh, what I mean by that as we move into this. Some of you might remember if you're uh, if you you can remember the 1980s, or if you just like to watch a lot of retro television. Do you remember those uh, those PSAs from uh, GI Joe that would come on the on the TV? Usually it was during kids' time. I'm a child of the 80s. I wasn't very much alive during these uh, original airings, but I have definitely seen my share of them. Uh, it was usually had to do with some uh, some kid or a group of kids doing something foolish, and they would uh, get themselves almost into a tr- into trouble. And then uh, G.I. Joe, one of the characters from the TV show, uh, would show up and uh, would set them straight. For instance, there was one where a little boy was at home and. Uh, his parents were alo- uh, had left him alone, and someone called him up on the phone and, and said, hey, you just won a prize. Or he says, your par- are your parents home? And he says, no, I'm home alone. And it's, it's kind of cheesy when you, really, when, you, when you watch it from today's uh, point of view. And, oh, no, I'm at home alone. My parents are gone. And he said, great, kid, you just won a prize. What's your address, and we'll mail you the prize. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You're playing that through right now? Just me? Okay, just me and Cindy. We're the only ones that watch uh, television, I guess. But uh, we learned our lessons from those, those public service announcements. But uh, they, that little kid would say, uh, oh, he'd start to give him his address, and then he'd run outside because the, 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 the prize was on its way. And just then, one of G.I. Joe's uh, would show up, and, and uh, he'd say, hey, guess what? I just won a prize, and, and they're bringing it to me. And, and he said, never give, the, you know, never give your address, and never tell, your, tell people that you're home alone on the phone, and, and stuff like that. And, and every single time those commercials were aired, they always ended the same way, and, and ended with two parts. After G.I. Joe, whoever it was, explained uh, the truth that this kid needed to learn, don't run away from home, don't lie to your parents, don't give strangers your personal information, whatever it may be, the kid would say, now I know. And G.I. Joe would always turn back then and say, and knowing is half the battle. How many of you at least recognize that little statement right there? And knowing is that that's where it comes from, folks, okay? There's a little bit of education there for you. That's where it comes from. This passage is Jesus's public service announcement, if you will, concerning his purpose on earth. He instructed his followers to recognize what he has and has not come to do. We saw that at the very beginning of verse 17 when Tim read it for us. And it's necessary for us, along with the early followers, to grasp what Jesus meant in his message if we're going to understand the rest of Jesus' message of his sermon. Remember that the focus of his whole message is on righteousness, the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And it's all about uh, the people that are there, as we saw already. Uh, what, we, what we're going to get into following verse 20 are probably more familiar verses to, to many of us than, 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 than the current passage when he talks about adultery and he talks about murder and he talks about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. But all of that has to be viewed through the lens of this passage here, verses 17 through 20. 
in this passage, Jesus teaches the proper perspective of true righteousness. And having the proper perspective, we then can get a proper interpretation of what true righteousness is all about. That's when we read when Jesus says, beginning in verse 21, you've heard it this way, but I tell you this. You've heard this, but I tell you this. And it's Jesus giving His interpretation, specifically the proper interpretation, of what God's law really means. And we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But before we can get a proper interpretation of what God's law says, we need to get the proper perspective. We need to get the right lens and view it through that. In this passage, if you're following along with me in your, in, with your notes there, you'll see there are four key statements that Jesus said. That we're boiling this, this, this passage here of five verses down, or four verses down, to four key statements, and we see them one in each verse. We see uh, verse number 17, he says, I have come to fulfill the law, not to destroy the law. Okay? He says the second statement in verse 18, that the law will remain until all of it is accomplished, or all of it is fulfilled. Third statement there is a little longer, but those who relax and ignore the law, teaching others to do so, will be called least in the kingdom. But on the contrary, those who both teach and, or do and teach God's law will be called great in the kingdom. And lastly, and building, each one of these statements really build on the last, is that your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It must exceed it. It must be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees' righteousness in order to enter the kingdom. Now there's a lot going on in this little passage right here, more than we even have time to do. But I want to try to explain to you what these four statements mean, these four truths, because when we understand the meaning of these four truths, we are then prepared to get into verse 21 and, and understand that. And if we don't, we're going we're gonna to get into verse 21. You can go ahead and read it without an understanding of what 17 through 20 mean, but, if, but you're not going to get the same thing out of it, and, and you're not going to get what Jesus wants us to get out of it if we don't properly understand 17 through 20. As I said, we're a bit more familiar with these passages on lust and anger and adultery. But this is going to structure our thoughts. It's going to guide us through the remaining sermon and really the rest of the teachings of Jesus and help us to understand uh, the, these four truths. Now, of these four truths, there are really two main thoughts that I hope that you'll get out of that. But let's go through and explain these four, these four truths and, uh, and, and try to see how they make application to us. Number one, he says, I've come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He says, verse 17 there, think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, if you don't know this already, I mean, just fill in a couple of gaps. If, 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 if you don't know this, it'll be very confusing. When Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets, he's basically speaking of what we call the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. Okay, so Moses or the law, are the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the rest of the books are what are collectively called the prophets. Okay, So when we read about the law, uh, as in uh, almost like with air quotes here, the law, we're talking about, uh, we can either be talking specifically about the law, or we can be talking about the whole Old Testament. We can talk about the whole thing as a whole. Paul speaks a lot about the law, and he's not isolating Genesis through Deuteronomy, but the prophets and the law uh, are really, they speak uh, to the same 
thoughts concerning the law. And Jesus is saying here that I've not come to destroy that. I'm not coming to abolish it or, 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 or make it void. I'm not coming to offer an alternative to it. I'm coming to fulfill the law. At times, Jesus was accused of doing this very thing. But he's clear right from the beginning, at least from Matthew's chronology here, the very first sermon, his very first recorded sermon is saying, I'm not coming to turn the law on its head. I'm not coming to bring this radical change to the law as you might expect. I'm here not in opposition to the Jewish law, to the, the, the law and the prophets. And oftentimes Jesus uh, was, uh, was uh, uh, the leaders, the religious leaders of this day would try to set Jesus in opposition to Moses and to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and, and those men. But consequently, by being in opposition to the Moses and the prophets, he would be in opposition to God himself because the law, and Moses didn't write the Ten Commandments on his own, he got this from God. And all the prophets spoke through, uh, as the Spirit, God spoke through the prophets. And so the leaders tried to put Jesus against God by saying he's against the law and the prophets. And from the very beginning, Jesus is saying, I'm not against the law. I'm not against the prophets. In fact, he says, I'm here to fulfill them, which tells us that he's actually a part of the whole plan uh, of the law. Uh, Jesus is very clear. He did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. He's not offering an alternative to the law, but rather he's here to fill it to the full. That's what it means to fulfill it. He's there to fill it up all the way to the brim. He had uh, uh, to accomplish the full meaning of what Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Habakkuk and all those guys, what they meant when they wrote what they wrote. Jesus was there to bring to fruition, to bring to pass that which the law and the prophets spoke of. Uh, and, and other many misunderstood his coming, thinking that the law was no longer relevant or necessary. And Jesus was effectively telling them here, this is not what you may think. I've not come to change or even add to the law. I'm not addending it. I've come to fulfill it. I'm not canceling it out. I'm completing it. And since I've not come to, I've not come to destroy or eliminate the law, Neither should you. He's telling his followers that. We see that uh, more clearly explained in the, in the next statement. But in truth, as I said, Jesus did not come to, 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 to offer some alternative route back to God uh, in opposition to the law. His coming was actually a part of the law. See, the law was part of God's plan just as Christ's coming was God's plan. And they worked together. They were in, in harmony, in unison, if you will, in, in bringing forth God's plan. It wasn't that Jesus came and said, nah, that's not working, let me try something. It was, this, is, this has been building up to my arrival, and I'm here not to turn it all away. I'm here because it promised I would be here. And I'm here to do what it says that I would do. Jesus, in a way, is saying, if things look different than what you expected, it's because you never really understood them correctly in the first place. Jesus did do things differently than what they expected the law to say. There's a lot of uh, conflict there. But it wasn't because Jesus was offering a new way. It was just that they had gotten away from the right way, and Jesus was coming in here to say, let me tell you what it was supposed to do. Remember, for instance, when Jesus was talking to the, the man, uh, the Pharisees, I think it was, about the, uh, 
the, the, the Pharisees or the scribes or Pharisees, someone, some of those enemies that he had, they said, all right, hey, well, we got a, we got a hypothetical for you here, Jesus. Like, what, if, what if a man dies and, he, and he, uh, he, he, he's married, but he doesn't have any kids? And so his brother takes his, his wife, is that, that leveret marriage thing, and, and, but then he dies without having any kids. And then his third brother uh, takes the wife and he dies without having any kids. He says, then who does she belong to in heaven? And Jesus, and Jesus explained this, this whole idea uh, of, and maybe I, maybe I just told you the wrong story, but the idea that he, that he said there was, uh, from the beginning, it was not so. He was talking about divorce there. But he, he said, uh, that, that, let me tell you how you've twisted this. You've misunderstood this for a long, long time. Let me take you all the way back to the very beginning and explain to you what it really means. That's what Jesus' purpose is here uh, in, in concerning the law. All right, so he's not here to oppose the law. He's here to complete it. I feel like I'm saying that many, many times, but I want you to understand that because this is level one, because level two builds on level one, level three, and level four, but we have to get number one down. He's not here to destroy the law. He's not here to do away with the law. He's here to complete the law. He's a part of the same plan. Number two, that God's law will remain until all is accomplished. Look in verse 18, please. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The, the jot and the tittle or the, the iota and the, I can't remember the other thing, the dot. It's, it's the very little nuances of the alphabet. The, the jot there is the iota, is speaking of the, of the Greek, and it's just a little tiny uh, slant that uh, makes, a, makes a huge difference. I'm studying uh, uh, Greek right now, and, and I feel like it's the first time in my entire life that I felt that I needed glasses. I'm the only person in my whole family that does not use some sort of corrective lenses except for the children. My, my wife, my, my brother, my sister-in-law, my mom and dad, everyone has glasses except for me, and I've kind of been proud of that until I'm studying this textbook, and then the iota is really, it's almost like just an accidental little mistake, but it's, it totally changes words in Greek. And, and the Hebrew has the same type of thing. And, and in our vernacular, for us to understand it, he's talking about the dot on the I or the crossing of the T. That thing that makes it just a little bit different. Maybe that thing that makes an R, uh, makes a P become an R. Just something so slight that really changes everything. And Jesus is, is trying to emphasize here the littlest things will not pass away unfulfilled. He says, he, and he's, what he's doing is he's doubling down on the first statement by guaranteeing that the law would remain. And he gives these two provisions we see in verse 18, meaning that the Old Testament was still relevant and will continue to be so until these two conditions were met. We see them both in verse 18. The first one is, until heaven and earth pass away. The second one is kind of at the end of the verse there, until all is fulfilled. Now, there's a lot to be said there. Let me just uh, summarize it all in saying this, that at this point in time, not everything had been accomplished. Jesus hadn't even died yet. Uh, He had come. Some of that had, had been fulfilled, but not all of it had been fulfilled. Therefore, the law still had a purpose. And Jesus was guaranteeing here that not one part of the law, not even the smallest, not even the most insignificant, most minute detail would go unfulfilled. If the law said it, it would come to pass. Nothing would be left undone. And so far, uh, what Jesus is saying here is firstly, he would not destroy the law, but now he's saying that nothing will destroy the law. Nothing will uh, void it until it has been fully realized. All right, you follow me? Now, number three, he says that those who relax and ignore the law and teach other people to do likewise will be called least in the kingdom, 
Conversely, those who both do and teach God's law will be considered great or called great in the kingdom. Now, this third statement here found in verse 19 is uh, it concerns the relationship now between the followers of Christ and the law. Now, Jesus, in his first statement, said my relationship to the law and the second statement kind of built on that. And now in the third statement, he's saying, and now here's here's your reaction to the law. You do likewise. You did, I did not come to destroy it. You don't destroy it. or You don't loosen it or abolish it. Uh, and so just as Jesus would not eliminate it, neither, neither should his followers. In fact, he warns them here about the smallest or the least commands. Uh, in this time, it was very common. It was very, uh, very widespread for, for religious teachers, Jewish teachers, to categorize uh, certain portions of the law and identify certain parts of the law as a little bit more important than other parts of the law. We call them greater matters. We call them weightier matters. I want to show you uh, them. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 22. If you want to uh, turn over there, Matthew 22, we're going to look at a, pra- a phrase there and then in verse tw- in chapter 23 as well. Keep your finger in, in uh, uh, 23 because we're going to come back to that when we finish reading that. In Matthew 22 and verse 35, this is when uh, a, a lawyer had come to Jesus and was tempting him and he asked him, uh, uh, in verse 36, he said, what is the great commandment in the law? And notice that Jesus, in his, in his response, does not correct him and say, no, no, they're all equally important. He says, no, I, I agree with you. There, is, there are greater commandments than others. And he says, verse 37, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now, it is not the first commandment in order of, of, of chronology. It's, it's in order of importance. Because he says a few verses later that on this and the second, hang all the rest of the law and the prophets. So all of the rest of God's laws hang on these two. Love God and love your neighbor. He says the second in verse 39 is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay, so we see here that even Jesus was 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 one who took and, and re- recognized, uh, categorized the, the elements of the law and said there are some that are more important than others. Now look over in chapter 23, if you will, and notice what he says there. Now he's having a conversation with uh, with the uh, the Pharisees there, and we're going to be looking at more of this passage, but I just want to show you in verse 23 of chapter 23, he says he calls them hypocrites. He calls them out for some bad things that they've done, and notice what it's that, that, that he's calling them out for. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Now, he's not saying, and we... we, we, we could read it. You can read the rest of it later on and understand. He's not saying that you need to get rid of that and start doing the weightier matters of the law. Because notice what the weightier matters of the law are. Judgment, mercy, and faith. He's not saying you should have been focused on this and forgot about paying tithes on your spices. He said later on, he said, you should not have stopped doing that, but you should have done all of that other stuff too. You have forgotten the weightier matters of the law. But what I want you to understand right now is that there were different, if you were, levels of keeping God's law. Now, if you break the least of God's law, you're a sinner just as much as if you break the worst, the, the, the greatest of God's laws. Okay, but it's, so it's not saying that, and it's not saying that, that there's like a, a, a list of, of 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 good to better or bad to worse. It's just saying that there were some that were a little bit more vital that carried a little bit more weight to them. As for instance, these first two that uh, on which on on those everything else hung. Okay, now we, we go back to Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is warning them that any of the followers of his who lightens up on even the least commandments, those who take the smallest ones and say, you know what, we don't need that, that one's insignificant, 
get rid of that one. We'll hold to the big ones, the big three, judgment, mercy, and faith. But you know these little ones we don't need to... He says those who, who lighten up on even the least ones would uh, and teach others to do so would be considered least in God's kingdom. But he says that those who continue to both keep and do the law, or keep and teach the law, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Recognize here that Jesus' followers were still expected to keep God's law and teach it to others. The point being here that they were expected to live righteously and in close obedience to God's commands. Now, if we stop there, it's not going to make a lot of sense if you try to interpret the rest of it. So let's go on to his last statement here. Your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom. Now, he's talking to his disciples. Remember remember this, that he's talking to those who are following him. He's not talking to a large crowd of people that, that are, are is not an, a, a salvation sermon, if you will. This is He's speaking to his disciples. Go back to the beginning of chapter 5. Now, it is very likely that there were non-unbelievers uh, there, as there usually are, but he's speaking this to the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the blessed people. Okay, He's still speaking to those people, and he says to them that, you have to have greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean by that? Everything seems to have built up to this one statement right here because this fourth statement quantifies just how much righteousness or just how righteous Jesus expected his followers to be. He says here that, uh, that if you're going to relax it, you're going to be uh, least. And if you keep it and teach it, you will be called great. Uh, he, he expects God expects righteous living. God expects righteousness in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says, and it's got to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, his saying that the, the righteousness must surpass the scribes and the Pharisees was a very aggressive statement, if you, if you understand uh, the background here. And I can imagine that people are sitting there listening and thinking, does he really know what he's saying? Does he get what he's requiring of us? Is he exaggerating, or is, is, he, is he for real here? I mean, that's pretty tough stuff. After all, the scribes were the lawyers. They were the people who studied the law, and they knew it better than anybody else. Not lawyers like what we think today, where they studied the civil laws. These were men who studied the religious law. They're the ones who copied out the Scriptures. They were the ones who taught the Scriptures to other people. When you had a question about the law, you went to the scribes. They were the experts. They were at the pinnacle of scriptural knowledge. Today, we might associate them with PhDs and seminary professors, the people you really don't question. Because if I disagree with that person, I'm probably wrong. You ever felt that way about someone? With someone like, if, if, we, if me and so-and-so disagree, I'll probably be the one that's wrong because... If he can't come to the same conclusion, now that's not always correct, but it's just a it's just a natural way of like he's a lot smarter than I am. And that's what that was the public opinion of the scribes. These guys were smart. These guys were knowledgeable and they knew their stuff. And so when they spoke, nobody questioned. And and for the Pharisees, they were right up there with them. Now today our term Pharisee is is very opposite what it was intended back then. For someone to be a Pharisee back then was, was an elevated position. Now if I call you a Pharisee, I'm, I'm insulting you, and you probably take it that way. But in that time, to be a Pharisee was a, was a good thing. It was, it was, a, it was a, a, a high honor, if you will. It was a, it was a high sacrifice to pay. Uh, 
in Jesus' time, they were the people who tried to follow God's laws as closely as possible. To live the lifestyle of a Pharisee meant uh, that, you, that much was demanded of you. In the public eye, these men were the epitome of righteous living. They were the gold standard, if you will, of good works. These were the men who daily made great personal sacrifice in order to keep God's law as perfectly and as closely as humanly possible. Really, you couldn't do any better than these guys. You couldn't follow the law any closer. You couldn't have greater righteousness than they did. You couldn't be any stricter. They were the best of the best. And yet, when Jesus declares that kingdom quality righteousness or the standard for entering into heaven must be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. You can imagine that it was it sounded first impossible to the common folk, thinking, how could he ask that of us? I mean, no one can enter the kingdom then. If we have to be better than the best, how do you do that? But also it was insulting to those who are Pharisees and scribes, thinking, what's wrong with ours? What's wrong with our righteousness? What's wrong with our strictness? Why wasn't it good enough? And how on earth can it even be greater? But by Jesus' interpretation here, it can be greater, and it must be greater if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this verse, we begin to see Jesus teach the new, or not the new, the proper interpretation of what God's law really means. This is where he begins to explain to us the true interpretation of what God's word means. For a long time, people had taken God's commands and added their bit to it. There were God's laws, and then men, probably with good intentions, began to add on top of that to try to make it easier to follow or more understandable or for whatever reason it may have been. But because of that, gradually the law became more and more polluted with man's interpretation of it. Because it focused more on the outward aspect than on the inward aspect. That's what man does. That's what we naturally do. We look at the outside because I can't judge you based on your heart. I have to judge you based on the outside. And so, if I'm a religious leader and it's my job to teach you these things and I'm really having a difficult time trying to figure out if you're doing it right in your heart, I'm going to move it onto the outside and say, perform. Do, do, do. And do all the things you're supposed to do and work the way outwardly that I think you probably should and then over time, that's what it became all about. And they forgot about the, the heavy, uh, the, the heavy uh, uh, place that uh, the inward law or the inward condition has, and they focused only on the outward. And because of that, the definition of righteousness became all about what you did. Doing righteousness. Jesus is requiring a greater righteousness here points us to two realizations, okay? And this is the meat of what, of what I think what we need to understand in this passage. Number one, that it is not good enough to merely keep the law outwardly. I asked you to keep your place in Matthew 23. If you did, would you turn back over there? If you didn't, it shouldn't be very hard to get back there. But Matthew 23, and I want to start back in verse 25. This is the same conversation that Jesus is having here with, his, uh, with the Pharisees here. In Matthew 23, verse 25, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, 
that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And he, and he, and he really just blasts them uh, for these, this, 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 this sin of theirs. Think about it. He was saying that they had a very clean exterior, but a very filthy interior. It would be the way that when we when we uh, when we pull, pull the, the the things out the dishes out of our dishwasher, we check to make sure that they're clean. If the outside is sparkly, but the inside still has all that that uh, crust from whatever you had in there last time, you don't say, "Well, at least the outside's good." In fact, if I had to have one or the other, I'd probably rather have the outside have a little crust on it than the inside. Because my lips aren't touching the inside or the outside. Uh, the, the, the thing I'm going to eat or drink is not going to touch the outside. It's going to be on the inside. But what Jesus said that you focus so much on making the outside clean, and then he calls them, uh, basically he calls them tombs. He says, you look very pretty on the outside. Decorated, you have some etchings, and you have flowers. But the inside, you're full of dead people. It's what you are. And he says, you're full of corruption and excess and extortion. He says, this is, you're so focused there, verse 28 there, he says, you are so focused on the outward appearance and you look righteous to men. But the problem was, on the inside, you're nothing close to them. And Jesus is telling his followers here that to properly keep God's law, you must keep it both inwardly and outwardly. The man's interpretation of righteousness is this do. You want to be righteous do this. You want to be righteous? Do that. That's man's interpretation. But Jesus' interpretation of true righteousness is be and do. You can't have one without the other. You can't sacrifice the one for the other. And over time, man had focused on the do because that's a whole lot easier to measure than be. And Jesus says, no, actually you have to start with the being with the inside, being righteous before you can even do true righteousness. The Pharisees were only concerned with outward behavior, but see, outward behavior can't change a person's heart. Kingdom quality righteousness, what Jesus requires, begins in the heart and works its way to the outside. That's the first thing that Jesus is saying here, the first truth. The second truth is that man's righteousness is not good enough. He says there in, uh, uh, that, uh, in verse, let me go back and read it to you, verse number 20, Matthew 5, 20. I accept your righteousness. Exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. I want to read some verses to you. I put them all in your notes because I don't know if we'll have time to get through them all. But I'd like for the, uh, if you accept the term homework uh, to come back and take a look at these. But Romans chapter 7 and uh, Romans 8 have some very interesting uh, teaching that really uh, Paul uh, really captures what Jesus is saying here and explains it to us uh, in verse number seven, uh, verse number twelve of chapter seven. Paul says, "Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good." And and that's true. The law is holy. David spent uh, many many verses in the Psalms talking to us about how I love Thy law. It's it, the law of the Lord is perfect. And the testimonies of the Lord are sure and they're righteous and they're, and they're clean and they're pure and they're just. But here's the problem with that. That even though the law is holy, righteous, and good, 
It can't make men holy, righteous, or good. Romans 8, Paul continues that thought. He says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The law cannot make us righteous. It's like a mirror. It only shows you what's wrong. It doesn't fix what's wrong. That's what the, that's what the purpose of the law was, was there to do, to show men their, their sin, but not to fix their sin. Man's problem then is that he cannot do enough righteousness. That's why every man tries to earn his own righteousness by keeping the law, finds they never do enough. Alright, I'm going to try to keep the law. I'm going to try to earn my righteousness. And you find I can't. I, I, it's, it's just too hard. It's too many plates to spin. It, and in fact, I start off losing because I'm born with sin. And no matter what righteousness I do in this life, it never takes the fact that I'm still guilty of sin. And so every time man tries to earn his own righteousness through keeping the law, he finds, I can't do this. And man's problem is that he can't do enough righteousness because he's not righteous to begin with. Because true righteousness does not begin on the outside. True righteousness does not originate with what you do. True righteousness begins with who you are. And you're not righteous. And I'm not righteous. And therefore, we can't do proper righteousness. What's, what's the solution? The sinful man is going to enter the kingdom. God's righteousness must be credited to him. That's why Jesus came to save us from sin and to make us righteous. We call it imputed righteousness. God's righteousness is, is uh, given to me. It's placed on my account. And, and what Romans 8.3 is telling us is that God did what the law couldn't do. The law couldn't make me righteous, and so God did. Let me read it again. He says, Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Why did God do what He did? Why did God send Jesus? That the righteousness of the, God, of, of the law might be fulfilled in us. Because the law could not make me righteous. God made us righteous through Jesus. By sending Jesus to satisfy this righteous requirement of the law. Let me read just one more place. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. There's some other verses there if you look at it later. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, for, for He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's what Jesus is, is, is teaching them if they will grasp it. He's saying to us, if we will grasp it, your righteousness is not good enough because you are not righteous to begin with. But there is a way through Christ. Jesus is saying here that your righteousness can't be greater if it's merely outward righteousness and your righteousness can't be greater if it's your own. The only way you can have greater righteousness is through Christ begins a work within and it works its way and displays itself outwardly. Now it's on this knowledge, this is the framework that Jesus builds the rest of His sermon. 
When we properly understand what true righteousness is, we can understand then how to display it. Because that's what he's about to get into. Showing righteousness through outward actions. But without this perspective, we will misunderstand what good works are all about. Remember, last week we saw that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he talks about showing your good works before men. But if you don't have the proper perspective of what good works do, you go out and you try to do good and you're frustrated because it doesn't work. This is why. Because it's really not your good that you're showing. It's the righteousness of God. Without this perspective, we end up trying even harder to be good and do good, or at least look good on the outside. But when I understand that true righteousness isn't just something that I do on the outside, but something that begins inwardly, I get a fuller understanding of what Jesus meant when He talked about things like adultery, murder, revenge, as well as good works like going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, because all of that's coming. From this perspective, I now know that as a follower of Jesus, as the light of the world, I'm to shine that light through good works. But those good works are more than simply showing it outwardly, more than outward behavior. They are more than just what I do and how I appear on the outside. Now I know that the righteousness I have is not mine, his. Now I know. Knowing. Yeah.